Thank you very much. My name's Tim. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Aloha kakahiaka, I think is the phrase. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for asking me, Kevin. I've been coming to this group for uh, a, a few weeks now, not every day, but some days of the week. And I like it enormously. I don't know why, I just do. <laughs> One group is in some ways much like another, except it's not. Um, I normally prepare, I normally prepare when I speak, um, but in this case, uh, I decided I was just going to listen to the reading, which is one of which we're very familiar with, and thought I'd pick out some points, which I did. But a couple of background facts, uh, as you can probably guess from my accent, I'm I'm not from around here. We're not in Kansas anymore. I'm from London, which is where I got sober. Um, my last drink was on the 24th of July, 1993. So I'm, uh, if I keep doing what I was told to do 30 years ago, then I'll be 30 years sober in about 10 days time. Um, I think it was Dr. Bob who said this, although if he didn't say it, I think it's still true. One mustn't appeal to authority unnecessarily. But the, the, the primary job in an AA meeting is to make sure that anyone in attendance leaves the meeting with a clear idea, what is alcoholism? How do you know you are an alcoholic? And what to do about it? Everything else is, as we say in England, toffee. If you say some other wonderful things, it's great. But those are the two, those are the two aims. And I've heard some very complicated explanations of alcoholism. Mine is very, very simple. I drank way too much, very, very often. And the question is why? Why did I drink too much? And why did I repeat the experiment? keeps talking in the book about the experiment of the first drink. Um, well, first of all, it's not because I'm stupid. I did many stupid things. I continue to do stupid things, mostly because I act on impulse on occasion. But I wasn't fundamentally stupid. Um, I've been, I've had mental illness in my life, but I, I've never been psychotic, to my knowledge. Those would be adequate explanations for why I would do something so stupid as to repeatedly drink far too much and place myself and others in danger and gradually uh, wreck my life one cell at a time. Those would be adequate explanations, but they don't apply because I'm, I was neither of those things, neither stupid nor psychotic. I wasn't influenced by other people to drink the way I drank. I certainly didn't do it because I wanted to do it. Now, one must be a little bit careful here. Every single drink I ever had seemed like a terribly good idea at the time, or at least seemed inevitable. However, when I look in aggregate, when I stand back from my drinking, and I look at the aggregate of what it did. I did not want that. 
I didn't want to be throwing up at two o'clock in the morning. I didn't want to be lying on my bed with my head spinning, unable to close my eyes, because if I closed my eyes, I knew I'd throw up, so I had to stay awake. I, I didn't want any of that. I didn't want the gradual drip, drip of relationships being damaged and prospects being damaged. I recognised that my drinking was doing those things and simply accepted them as part of the deal of whatever it was that I was doing. The project of my drinking became the only significant project in my life. Everything played second fiddle to it. And I made the decision, apparent decision, to live like that with a heavy heart as I recognised what it was doing. Um, people sometimes say they drank because X, Y and Z. That implies a rational process. If I want an apple and I go to the shop, I buy the apple, then I, that's a rational decision-making process. You realise what is lacking. You work out where to get it from, and you go and get it. My explanations for my drinking, however, well, I'm anxious, I would say. I'm depressed, I would say. They don't add up as the reason why I was drinking, because they, made, they were made worse by my drinking, not just over the course of my drinking, but in the evening itself. I would drink depressed and become more depressed. It would drive me further into the depression on occasion, particularly when I was drinking on my own. So the explanations don't add up. And the big book is very good on this. It says, uh, I think it's around page 23, that these excuses are alibis. They're not the real reason. And when you point out the fallacious reasoning, the alcoholic usually becomes irritated, and I would become irritated. Because it's more frightening to be drinking for a reason you cannot identify than to try to pin it on something as reasonable as being anxious or depressed or lonely or any of the other things. It's much more frightening to recognise that there are forces within you which are not only defeating you, driving you towards taking certain actions, but convincing you every step of the way that you are acting under your own free will when any rational assessment of the situation reveals you are not. That's terrifying. And that's the unmanageability. The unmanageability is the flip side of the powerlessness. If I can't choose as a genuine act of the will whether I have a drink, and then once I've drunk, I cannot choose as a genuine act of the will how much I'll drink, I'm not in charge of the course of my life. Something else is. And that is the frightening bit. Now, my life happened to be a mess, but that's not step one. That comes in step three. Once I've decided in step three, I'm going to turn my will and life over to God. It says, oh, by the way, is the rest of your life a mess? Great. Then step three is just the ticket for that as well. But the big book is very clear. Its examples are very interesting. Jim and Fred, I love them because their lives weren't a mess. They weren't dysfunctional in other areas. But Jim was kind of normal. But Fred, sensational, yet alcoholic. Yet his life was unmanageable. Why? Because his drinking was out of control. Um, and that's the terrifying part when you realise that you're dancing with the gorilla. 
and you're not done dancing until the gorilla is done dancing. And I have to be very strict. I can't allow any mood or mind-altering substances anywhere near my system. Other people, you know, that's people can do what they want. I can't. Rather, I can, and that's the final bit. Because I can't drink. Oh, well, no, you can. <laughs> you just shouldn't. Uh, I've seen too many people go out and be unable to come back. So I, if if I were to go out, I don't know if I'd wash back up in AA again. I I doubt it. Um, on to the solution. Um, the solution is for me not to live by the rules of the world anymore. The rules of the world, as they appear to me to be, are these. You work out what you think would make you happy, and then you go and get those things, and then you'll be happy. That was how I lived. That's, that's how uh, people on LinkedIn appear to live anyway. You have ambitions, and then you satisfy those ambitions, and then you're cushy. Everything is good. Um, I can't live uh, based on me. For two reasons. First reason, my alcoholism. Because being an alcoholic means there is a little voice inside me, which is quiet most of the time. I don't know, is it reading? Is it on holiday? I don't know where it is. But occasionally it pops up and says a drink would be a good idea. The moment that idea pops up, I better not be in charge. If I'm in charge, I'll drink. Because that thought does not come with a little label saying, I am the insane thought of your alcoholism. It's just a thought like any other. So I must be living by a system other than I'm going to do what my brain just told me to do. There has to be a different way. I also have burnt out the circuits of materialism. In other words, living based on the idea that if I establish myself uh, securely in an insecure world and acquire goods and services and position and status and the love of particular people and whatever else, that if I get those, I'll be happy. I've tried that I couldn't do it drunk because I was too drunk. Tried it sober, first eight years, catastrophe. Uh, of course, you can't tell anyone this. Everyone has. You have to go through it yourself and to realise that the, the you've been sold a bill of goods by the marketing department of materialism. Uh, but I can't live life based on self. As soon as I want, want is associated with lack. In English, it means two things. It means lack and it means desire. And they're the same thing. They're the flip side of the same thing. As soon as I want frustration, fear, anxiety, disappointment, jealousy, envy, and despair. I can't live with wanting. Um, it says in that reading, protection and care. Protection against what? Only one thing. Myself, or rather my lower self, lowercase s. Um, my ego would kill me if it didn't me need me for transportation. And then a few years ago, I realized it will kill me even though it needs me for transportation. 
the protection is against the other voice. There's the, inside me, there's the voice that listens to the higher power and conveys that. And there's, there's the voice of the ego. Those are the only two. I'm blind without a voice. I can't. I'm deaf without one of those. I need one or the other to live. The ego system has not worked. I need God. Protection and care. This means that uh, it's not just needs. People say, well, God will give me my needs, but not my wants. Well, thank God he won't give me my wants. But I think it's far more than that. The book does promise uh, that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Not just the satisfaction of certain essential needs, but something far greater than that. Now, if that's God's will, and God is omnipotent and omniscient, I needn't worry about what I think it is that will deliver happiness, joy, and uh, freedom. Uh, step 11, praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. And his will for me, I don't need to figure out what God's plan for my life is. All I need to know is what shall I do today? Very, very limited in scope. And I can breach step 11 either by failing to ask God for knowledge of what he wants me to do today or trying to hack the system to try to get bigger answers. And I've not got bigger answers. I do not see the bigger picture. All I can see is what I'm asked to do today. The only thing which can get in the way of that is my character defect. It talks in step seven about humility and in step five and the 12 and 12. And in the step five, it says, I can say I've got a minute left, so I'll have to speed up. Humility, a, a recognition of who and what we are, and a sincere desire to become what we could be. And who and what I am, you see, I'm spirit. My character defects are tools that the spirit uses in the material world. My so-called virtues or assets are not mine. Those are tools or instruments as well. I am not the defects. I'm not the virtues or the assets. I'm just spirit. That is it. To have the defects removed simply means not using those tools and using different tools and instruments instead. That's all. There's nothing wrong with me that needs to be fixed. There's something wrong with how I have been living. That is it. And all I need to do is go through every day doing two things. Having woken up to being spirit. Number one. Pass this message on as I'm directed by my higher power to whoever shows up and to have affairs to practice these principles in. So my life becomes a demonstration of these principles. Thanks for listening.